This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. An unlikely friendship begins in the Paramount Plus original movie, Little Wing, starring Brooklyn Prince with Kelly Riley and Brian Cox. Reeling from her parents' divorce, Caitlin steals a valuable bird to save her home, but instead forms a bond with the owner, leading to a new outlook on life. Little Wing, now streaming exclusively on Paramount Plus. Head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Rated PG 13. Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. Dear Sugar is supported by The universe has good news for the lost, lonely, and heartsick. Sugar is here, the both of us, speaking straight into your ears. I'm Cheryl Strayed. I'm Steve Almond. This is Dear Sugar Radio. Oh, dear song, won't you please share some little sweet days with me? Hi, Steve. Hi, Cheryl. So here we are today. We are going to talk about secrets. In fact, we're going to do a two-part episode on secrets, particularly family secrets. Mm -hmm. We get so many letters from people on one or another side of this divide. I have a secret, and I don't know what I should do with it. Right. Or I have had a secret kept from me that has now been revealed. When you get such new information, it can be really actually life-changing. Right. And in fact, we'll divide the episodes. This week, we'll be talking about family secrets, having a secret, right? And part two will be about the revelation of some dark knowledge within a family system. And, you know, one of the central products in the factory that a family is, is the production of secrets. And as artists, we're always struggling with when do we and how do we break that silence? You know, mm-hmm. I'm, I know you're guarding a lot of secrets. For as much as you've told the world, there's still some secrets you're guarding. And I always tell people who say, gee, you're right about all this radical stuff and sex and your family. And I was like, you have no idea. I'm still guarding a lot of secrets about myself and about my family members who I don't want to hurt. But one that was sort of central to my growing up was that my twin brother was gay. Mm-hmm. And he kept that a secret for a long time. He kept it a secret from himself and then he kept it a secret from the family and essentially tried to pass as heterosexual. And I know I've told you this story and our listeners, I was absolutely gobsmacked when he revealed that he was gay, which was after his freshman year, our freshman year in college. Uh I simply, you could have knocked me over with a feather. He kept his secret from you so well. You know, it's interesting you say he kept it a secret from himself. Oh, yeah. Which to me... I immediately question because I think, well, that's not a a secret. You know, if this is information that he doesn't have even about himself yet, how is that construed as a secret? And I think it's a kind of secret. And I, in my own life, 
had that sort of secret when I was three and four and five, as listeners know, and and people who have read my Dear Sugar column, I wrote a column called The Baby Bird about my sister and I being sexually abused by our paternal grandfather Mm -hmm. when we were left in his care. And, you know, for years, you know, I knew this thing had happened. I knew that it was icky. And I knew that it was shameful, but I have absolutely no memory whatsoever of my grandfather ever telling me and my sister that we were not to tell anyone else. I think sometimes I've maybe said that he said that, but now that I really think about it, I think that that I don't remember him saying that. Mm -hmm. It was just, it was so strongly implied that I knew that I shouldn't say anything. Mm -hmm. And part of it was that I didn't even know what was happening to me. I didn't. I didn't know. Which you knew was inappropriate. Yeah. Well, you know, I didn't know the word inappropriate. I was still so young that I was still figuring out, you know, what my body was. And let's face it, when you're that age, adults are intimate with your body. Mm -hmm. I mean, right? I didn't know that what inappropriate touching was because I'd only been touched in loving ways. But so years later, when I was 13 or 14, you know, reaching into my own adolescence and sexual maturity, I suddenly, it dawned on me. I put all these pieces together. Mm-hmm. And I realized I had been sexually abused. And I went to my sister immediately. And so it wasn't that it was a secret. It was a realization. Maybe your brother had that same kind of thing, mm-hmm. where once this information was available to him, then the minute he didn't speak it out loud, it was a secret. But I took this right to my sister, and I said, do you remember this? Mm-hmm. Or did I just make this up? And she said, no, absolutely. That, that happened. happened. And then together we went to our mom and we told her. And so one of the things, you know, when you say every family has its secrets, you know, I also think, you know, every family has a different culture. And one of the things I think that saved me many times I've said, okay, this sexual abuse was a bad experience in my life, but I don't think it scarred me profoundly. And part of it, perhaps, I never thought of this until just this moment, mm-hmm. was that I did grow up with a mother who, you know, it didn't even occur to me to keep this information to myself And she from believed her. you, yeah. And then I became an adult, and I shared that secret with the world. Right. I told the story of it. Mm-hmm. And I think that that kind of airing, we're going to explore this today in our conversation. You know, what happens to a secret when we tell the secret? It's not a secret anymore. That's right. There's this great quote, James Joyce from Ulysses. It's about secrets. He writes, secrets stony sit in the dark palaces of our hearts. And then he goes on, secrets wary of their tyranny, tyrants willing to be dethroned. Like the way in which a secret wants to reveal itself. There's this pressure. But against that, as we see over and over again in our letters, is an individual and or a family culture or in collaboration withholding acknowledgement of a secret, failing to respond, you know, kind of collaborating and making sure that that tyrant doesn't get unloosed on the family. Why don't you read our first letter? Okay, I'm going to warn folks that this is a fairly intense letter. Dear Sugars, I am a 35-year-old woman who has kept a dark secret from my mother for many, many years. When I was 11, I was a precocious child with an insatiable appetite for books. I would read anything I could get my hands on without much interference from my mom or stepdad. I developed a strong sexual curiousness and would talk constantly about inappropriate things with my stepdad. A little background regarding this man, who I will call C., My mom met him, and about six weeks later, he moved in with us, us being my mother, my 14-year-old sister, and 8-year-old me. 
My mom and dad separated when I was four, and I never really experienced true fatherly love. My dad was an alcoholic who went off the deep end in the first few years of my life. My sister got to experience six healthy years with him, so her loyalty toward him has always been fierce, not so much with me. I was desperate for the love of a father, and when C came along, he promised me and my mother that he would provide all of the attention we were missing from my father. He drove me three hours there and back to acting class every Saturday when I was in middle school. He told me that I was capable of doing anything. I believed him. When my mom married him, I, too, changed my last name to his. And there we were, a happy family at last. Then my mother lost her job, and everything changed. She was traveling a lot to find work, and I was spending more time alone with C. I started flirting with him, and stories of the daughter of his ex-girlfriend started coming to the surface. I was wicked jealous. Who was this girl, and why were there pictures of her on his desk? One weekend over the summer, my mom went out of town, and C gave me a wine cooler while we hung out in the hot tub. Appropriate, right? A few weekends later, we made a planned road trip many miles to a different state to visit my stepbrothers while my mom was interviewing for work on the other side of the country. It started innocently enough, me asking him if we could kiss, him telling me no, but asking me if I touched myself. Then he would tell me about what it was like to have an orgasm. I was intrigued. We drove for miles and miles, and I was about 100% sure that I was safe with this man who I believed was my parent and my protector. Still, I flirted. On the second night of our journey, in the back of the truck bed, he sucked on my nipples. I liked it, but I told him that was enough for the night. He was frustrated and irritable the next morning and didn't talk much. When we got to our resting place for the night, I was desperate for his love and his attention. I let him kiss me and put his fingers inside me, and then I rolled over and cried. The next morning, I told him I never wanted him to touch me like that again. The next four years are best described as abusive, chaotic, and tormented. Every moment that we had alone, C would take the opportunity to let me know he wanted to leave my mother. Of course, it was my fault. By the next school year, my mom had found work, and I got a job as soon as I possibly could, got actively involved in theater and my church youth group. At night, I prayed for God's forgiveness and my mother's ignorance and for C to leave. He never did. But I did. I packed my bags and moved far, far away from that man and my mother and never lived with them again. I spent 13 long years trying to find a different story for myself, drinking my old story away. It worked for a while, and then it didn't anymore. I was at a point where I was either going to stop drinking or I was going to die. Thankfully, sobriety came first. Fast forward four years. I'm in a relationship that is healthy and loving. Almost everyone in my family, including my stepbrothers, know the story of what happened with C, except for my mother, who has remained loyal and mad for this man for the last 27 years. I write this letter, Sugars, because everyone in my family wants me to tell my mom what happened. I don't think I should. For the most part, I am able to forgive her and let her be who she is, and I can even be around C without my skin crawling. What I really want to do is confront him, but the two of them are joined at the hip, and finding time to confront him on his own would be no small feat. Still, that's what seems to be the most healing. 
But some say, no, don't say anything to him. Save the healing for your mother. You've helped me so much, sugar. I've stopped letting men who don't love me the way I love them take up space in my life, and instead I am in a beautiful relationship with a kind and loving man. But this haunts me, and it haunts my family, and I want to know what the right thing to do is. Please help. Lost somewhere in California. I could see that it was not pleasant for you to listen to this letter. Ugh, this letter, lost somewhere in California, this letter really makes me agonize. It just hurts to read what you've written. And the only thing that really saves me is just how well you have turned out, how beautifully your life has gone in the face of this incredibly awful thing that happened to you when you were a young girl, that you're sober four years Congratulations. That's amazing. And now in a great relationship. I mean, that's the thing that we're going to, at least as we discuss this darkness, It's that's the, the light I'm going to hold on to. Mm-hmm. Because I think that that's the place from which you can start making sense of what to do with this secret that you have. And I first want to say, the most important thing that you do with it is whatever feels right to you. You are under no obligation to confront your stepfather if you don't want to. You're under no obligation to tell your mother about this if you don't want to. And so I want to say this before we even get into like, well, what about you do this? Or maybe you should do this. Because what really matters is there's no one correct way to behave. I really think, you know, your family members telling you what you should do is really kind of dangerous waters. I love it that your stepbrothers are on your side and that your sister's on your side and that people are supporting you. But it scares me that you're looking to them as the people who are telling you what you should do with your stepfather and your mother. I honestly think that the deeper question is, what do you hope for in talking to these people about what happened? Are you hoping for an apology? Are you hoping for your mother to leave your stepfather? I would say in both cases, if what motivates you to share this secret with them is either of those things, I encourage you not to do it (laughs) because it's too dangerous. The likelihood of your mother lost somewhere in California, of your mother leaving your stepfather after all of these years is really slim, I'm Mm -hmm. sad to say. Mm -hmm. The likelihood that your stepfather would suddenly step forward and take responsibility for his abuse, and it was that, very slim. And so this doesn't mean I don't think you should confront them, but I think you need to get really clear on what you hope to get from confronting them. Yeah. And, you know, the other thing that strikes me is that I love this line about I was trying to find a different story, drinking my old story away, because a part of what I sense in the letter is an effort to sort of process and understand what happened. And I think for the most part, lost somewhere. You're setting out the facts, but I want to try to sort of reframe what what was going on here a little bit. You might know this, but I'm not sure that you do. You are clearly aware that your father left. You never had that love, and that C swoops in as this hero and offers this, and that leaves you vulnerable, and that you were also curious and precocious and, you know, felt pre-adolescent kind of sexualizing and recognizing your body, stuff that's totally normal and natural. What a good parent guardian does at that moment is when he can tell that you're flirting and whatever else it is, you know, seeking forms of attention that are understandable but inappropriate, um, is they set a boundary. They set a very clear boundary. And I think what happened is your stepfather saw that boundary as an opportunity. 
And what happened after that is that, you know, he was in ways that I think you might understand now, but certainly didn't understand then, really manipulating you. Mm -hmm. And, you know, presenting the photo of a rival for his attention and that picture that shows up on the desk. You know, orchestrating circumstances where there's a wine cooler and a hot tub and you guys Giving are her just, a wine cooler. Yeah, you yeah. guys are just pals and yeah. you're hanging out. And you know what? He's going to help you understand your body and your sexuality. This is a form of predation. Mm -hmm. And one of the forms it takes is what's called fanning, where you kind of try to figure out where the boundary is and what's acceptable and who a suitable victim is, frankly, who's going to accept certain advances. So I think you might have the sense that you were sort of an active collaborator in this, but I think you need to realize he was controlling this situation. Yeah, you were, you were not an active collaborator. You were a victim of his abuse. I think that the reason... We've had this letter for a while. I've read it several times over the last several months. Yep. And I have to say, I'm so disturbed by it. And when I was listening to you read the letter, Steve, what I just realized, I think the reason it disturbed me so much is last somewhere in California, I was you. I know precisely when you describe not having a father Having your father abandon you, just like my father did, and then having this loving stepfather come into your life, mm -hmm. same thing happened to me. And I remember, I really vividly remember how wildly I fell in love with my stepfather mm -hmm. when he married my mother. And, you know, I finally had the dad that I always dreamed of having. And my story turned out differently than yours in this regard in that, you know, my stepfather was appropriate with me. He was a father figure and he didn't cross those lines. You know, when I came up against that, those boundaries that I think all kids do when they're in that age where they're, you know, they're discovering their sexuality, they're curious. He didn't feed a fire in any inappropriate way. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's, you know, I understand psychologically that very vulnerable place you were in. And I guess when I think about you confronting your parents, your stepfather and mother about this, I worry you're going to be brought back to that vulnerable place. Right. But one thing I want to say is there's a difference between confronting these two people with this information and you simply doing what you're doing right now by writing to us and what you've done by sharing this with your siblings, and that is telling the truth about your life. Support for Dear Sugars comes from BetterHelp. If you had an extra hour in the day, how would you use it? BetterHelp Online Therapy can help you figure out what's most important to you so you can prioritize it. Learn to make time for what makes you happy. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Visit betterhelp.com sugars today to get 10% off your first month. So another voice that we want to bring into the conversation is the wonderful writer, Catherine Harrison. Part of the reason we want to bring her in is because um, she is somebody who has told the truth about her story. She's the author of the memoir, The Kiss, 
which is, I think it's a different story, but it resonates with you lost somewhere in California because she also was somebody who had a missing father and her father came back into her life in a very dark way. We think she's just the right person to speak to this. She's also just released a wonderful collection of essays, which is called True Crimes, a Family Album. And that too is about this broader issue that we're talking about this week and next, which is family secrets held and revealed. So let's give her a call. Hi, is this Catherine? Is she? Yeah. Hi, Catherine. This is Cheryl Strayed. Thank you so much for agreeing to be on the show. I mean, I am such a fan of your work. You, you've written such powerful and beautiful stuff, and I just want to tell you what an influence you've had on me personally. So thank you. It's an honor to talk to you. Well, thank you. It's an honor to be here on Sugar Radio. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> So we have been discussing this letter from a woman who signs herself lost in California. Uh, You've had the opportunity to read the letter? I have. What do you um, make of this woman's struggle to figure out whether she should confront her stepfather or not or tell her mother about what happened to her when she was a young woman? Well, I think it ends with her saying that she's in conflict with the rest of her family who are pressuring her to tell her mother mm-hmm. what has happened. And it seems from what she's saying that she really doesn't want to, but that there's pressure from the family and there's some sort of sense that it's the right thing to do. I mean, you know, this is sexual abuse and then there should be transparency and all the rest. I completely understand that. But I also understand the perspective of this happened, you know, 15, 20 years ago. I've moved on. I've dealt with it. I have a relationship with my mother. She doesn't know about it. I don't know if I want to open this huge can of worms, which will then become the text of our relationship for years. And I don't know how old her mother is, but I can certainly see choosing not to bring it up. And the other thing, Catherine, you know, all three of us in this conversation, we are all writers who have actually told secrets on the page and had those books published and, you know, all kinds of things that are taboo to write about and have been, you know, people are amazed that we said those things about ourselves and our family members. And so you'd think that three of us would all be like, you know, you must tell. And, you know, and I, it's funny because I came down on the same side, like, this woman it is her experience. And, you exactly. know, she can speak the truth if she feels driven to. And I'm curious about if you could tell us and our listeners a bit about your own life and the answers that you came to when it came to telling really uncomfortable truths to your family members and also to the world via your books. Yes, I can speak to that. <laughs> that was a secret that I was keeping, the one about <clears throat> my relationship with my father. Yeah, maybe could we back up and tell us some some background so people who aren't familiar with your work will know your story. My mother's parents raised me for my teenage mother and father, who was out of the picture by the time I was six months old. I saw him on two occasions briefly growing up. When I was 20, he re-entered my life and uh, seduced me manipulated me into a sexual relationship which lasted for four years and I'd say pretty much destroyed two families and 
cost me almost everything I had. And I understood all through that relationship and after that relationship that it was a secret. And as I got older, I also understood how powerful that was. I mean, it, to be forced to keep that secret is, I mean, that's the only thing that keeps the relationship alive. And I wrote the story first as a novel. It was my first book because I really, I couldn't do it any other way. I didn't know that I was allowed, I suppose, or I didn't allow myself mm-hmm. to write it as nonfiction. Mm-hmm. So I fictionalized the story, and as soon as it was published, I felt really surprised by how upsetting it was for me to have told that story and then have the words underneath the title, a novel, mm-hmm. as in, I made it up. Right. And I most assuredly had not made up the most important part of it. So I felt, I felt that I'd betrayed myself in some ways. And I was just really, really uncomfortable with the sense of being forced to keep a secret. And a secret that was malignant for me in my life. And I discovered all sorts of things about keeping secrets like that. You know, that I couldn't really keep a secret that was so profound without becoming secretive in general, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. Having that sort of nature being defended. And all of these things were very uncomfortable for me. And increasingly so as I was a parent. Because, you know, your children feel you through and through. And I knew that there was this sort of territory within me that was walled off and that they, being children, would feel it and would also take it personally, you know, that I'd shut them out. And I, I didn't really feel like shutting anybody out mm-hmm. or keeping that dark place obscured. So I told that secret. I wrote that book for a very particular purpose. And it was really, <laughs> I refused to be quiet anymore. Right. So you say that you were forced to keep the secret for a long time. Who was asking you to keep the secret? Your father? No, I suppose I forced myself. Uh I've internalized all sorts of messages from everybody around me, from the culture, from the fact that, you know, I knew that there was risk in saying something like that about myself, Mm -hmm. that I existed in... In a world which it became increasingly clear that the incest taboo is actually not quite as strong as the taboo against talking about it. That's right. right. I always go. say that. I always say nothing that's so common is a taboo. What's a taboo is to talk about it. And right. well, exactly. Catherine, and honestly, people like you, you know, you're breaking that taboo, you know, powerfully. And I'm curious about: Did you tell anyone your secret at all? until you began to write about it? Uh, Very, very few people. I had told my analyst. I told one friend, and I told my husband. Mm. That was it. Huh. Interesting. What were the consequences of you revealing that secret? Um, Well, I suppose there were many different ones. Uh, It was absolutely the right thing for me to do as a human being and as a writer, you know, that problem, that secret stood between me ultimately and the rest of life. So uh, I couldn't really see past it if it was untold, if that makes sense. Yeah. It just it, it got bigger. It didn't get smaller. Mm. 
And uh, I was really just unwilling to live that way anymore. And to the point where I would be, say, at a cocktail party, which doesn't happen all that often, um, but it used to happen more often. And just having sort of small talk with people and thinking this is all such meaningless bullshit. What if I just looked at you right now and said, you know, from the time that I was 20 to 24, I was having sex with my father. Mm-hmm. You know, what would you say then? You know, so there was this sort of sense <laughs> growing within me that there were so many meaningless conversations right. that we had out in the world. Right. They were constantly foisted upon me. And I did have something to say, but it wasn't really about a movie or where I was going right. next year. Right. It's kind of a fake a fake discourse because the most meaningful right. experience is something that you're not right. allowed to speak. Yeah. I'm curious about when you were uh, sort of trying to figure out what happened with your dad, which I'm going to imagine was an absolutely complicated, mind-blowing thing to try to figure out. Did you first feel that you were in some sort of consensual relationship in some ways? Um, You know, I think that I had a range of responses that swung from one pole to another. And at one end, uh, I was sort of an iconoclast who had no interest in living by rules that society imposed on people. Bear in mind, I am in my early 20s. Right. So functionally, on many levels, still a child. Yeah. Although you don't know you're a child when you're 20. Yeah. You think you're quite grown up. Mm -hmm. So I was, in the moment, although I can look back now and see how obvious it was that I was coerced and also how, from the very beginning, my father's advances toward me were so inappropriate that I immediately shut down and refused to see them, partly as a result of my age. You know, I I was in school in the 70s in a sort of repressive school. I'd never had sex ed. Nobody ever talked about bad touching. And as far as I was concerned, you know, a person like my father didn't exist, you know. So whatever he did also sort of didn't happen. Mm. Um, And by the time I was fully ensnared in it, then, like most people, I, you know, sort of grasped for some sense of agency, even if it was a fantasy. So I think I probably claimed more responsibility in the moment than I had, and that was true for many years. For a number of reasons, I think the greatest reason was that it was much easier for me to say this much was my fault or whatever than it was to say I got hurt. Mm. And it wasn't because of anything other than the fact that I trusted you. Mm-hmm. You know, I wasn't bad. You know, that isn't actually what happened. But it's hard to come to that point. It is. Did did you ever confront your father? You know, I made the assumption, (laughs) as soon as the relationship was over, I was really in a position of, you know, how how did a nice girl like me end up in a situation like this? Right. And, you know, obviously a far darker sort of situation than that makes it sound. But I really had, I felt, a lot of thinking and figuring out to do. Mm -hmm. And I began as soon as possible, 
So, you know, flash forward 15 years, and um, my husband's father, whom I'm very close to, dies. And the presence of my father-in-law had really sort of allowed me to put a lot of thoughts and feelings about my own father on hold. He was just such a wonderful presence. And then he was gone. And suddenly it was like this sort of great sort of um, facade, one of those fake movie things dropped. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And there was my father after all. And I thought, oh, well, you know, I do care if he's living or dead. You know, I know I'm not going to have any relationship with him, and I certainly don't want my family to have any relationship with him, but I do care if he's living or dead. So I wrote a letter that was you know, very carefully worded um, because we had agreed we'd never speak to each other again. All it said was that I would really want to know if he were ever gravely ill or if something happened to him. Mm-hmm. That was it. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> Months later, I got a response from him. It was actually very him when I look at it now, but in the moment seemed completely crazy to me and also indicated that he had not for one moment tried to think about what had happened. And he told me straight out that he blamed me for ruining his life and uh, I'd be the last person anybody would let know anything. And I mean, a really hostile, insane letter that had neither a salutation nor was it signed, you know. Not dear anybody, not find mm-hmm. anything. And was this after you had written about what had happened between you? Yes. So yes, he knew that you had told yes. the world, right? But you'd never yeah. directly confronted him, even before you wrote about it. No, no, I, I hadn't. Um, because after all, I was by then 24, and it wasn't so simple that I could confront him and say something like, you know, when I was eight years old, you came into my bedroom at night. That wasn't what happened. Mm-hmm. Had he coerced me and been Machiavellian and worked to undermine every relationship I had with other people. So ultimately I was completely alone. Yes. Mm -hmm. But still I was 20 or Mm -hmm. 22 Mm -hmm. and that puts me in a very ambiguous position. Yeah. You know, uh, what's interesting, Catherine, I was just thinking as you were talking about this experience of sort of being trapped at the cocktail party of your life, being unable Mm -hmm. to say the sort of deepest, most meaningful thing that was kind of the fundamental fact or shaping events of your life. Right. It, it, I thought about a couple of things in relation to what Lost somewhere in California is struggling with. The, the first thing is that in her letter, the actual first thing that we hear is that she's 35 years old and she's been keeping a secret from her mother, a dark secret, for many years. And yes. um, what's interesting is that the, the, the solution that she proposes at the end of this letter is essentially a kind of repetition compulsion. Her mother is still out of the secret. She's still sharing a dark secret just with her stepfather, and her mother is, as she was in her childhood, absent. Mm -hmm. I think under the surface of that, if you can imagine to be at the cocktail party of your life or maybe just your life and not be able to say to your own mother the darkest, most fundamentally true thing about you, and it's not only because, you know, her mother might say, no, it didn't, or you're stepfather's a fine man or you were a young harridan or whatever she might say. It's also because I think implicit in that is that her mother didn't protect her. No, of course her mother did not protect her. And it's interesting that she never says that. And I think maybe she doesn't feel the right to do that because she entered into this secret relationship 
with her stepfather and, you know, excluded her mother. I'm not saying that that's literally how it played out, but psychologically it feels like maybe that's the reason that she is not going to, you know, basically tell her mother, this happened to me. Right. Uh, you know, this really, you know, it signed Lost in California, and this really, the writer of this letter strikes me as somebody who is truly teetering on ambivalence. You know, that she is uncomfortable with the secret. It is a matter of pain to her. There is probably resentment and anguish that is nowhere near the surface of that letter. And she also knows that to relieve herself of the burden alone is going to have consequences. And I don't know, you know, maybe she doesn't want them. I mean, she seems like somebody who's weighing the issues and is really not sure. Yeah. Yeah. And like you, she's built a, you know, again, on this rubble, she's rebuilt her life. She's built a, and she's that, got a lot to lose. Lots of positive things I, that she tells us about her life now. You know, I do think, too, uh, we, you know, we mentioned before the difference between just simply telling the truth and mm-hmm. confronting people with the truth. You know, that you wrote right. a book and you didn't have to, you know, uh, meet your father for, you know, like a big showdown. You, you just right. said, here's my life and right. I'm done standing at the cocktail party making small talk. I'm going to tell right. you my story. And your father is bound up in your story, but it's your story. And he's very much not exposed in the book. But the point is, that even if lost somewhere in California, if you're not a writer and you're not going to write a memoir, what I really think, you know, my best advice that I have for you is to say, your life is your story, and you have the right to tell it to anyone you want to tell it to. And you have the right, too, to wait this moment out. If you don't want to have some big conflict with your mother or your stepfather, it's up to you. You can decide right now to not confront them about it. And then, like, next year at Thanksgiving, suddenly decide that at dinner you're going to say something. Hmm. And, you know, right. it's it's not like you come to this decision one time. You know, I think that asking that question, why do you want to tell the truth, you know— Catherine, I love the way you put it that like you needed to tell that truth because it was standing between you and the rest of your your life. life. And so lost somewhere in California, if that's the way this secret feels to you, tell it. And if it feels like more of a burden to tell that secret, then don't do it. You've earned the right. You own this story. Exactly. And over the years, I've certainly heard from people who are either on one side or another in terms of what do you do. Many people have said, you know, I understand why you had to write it. I understand why you had to figure it out. I just don't understand why you wanted to tell anybody about it. If I were you, I... And then there's other people who feel completely differently. And there's also the chance that she's ripening toward it, that writing this letter was sort of a practice telling. And, you know, maybe... Next month, she's on an airplane with a stranger, and she tells a story and says, what do you think I should do? And maybe she tells it to a friend who's not part of the family. You know what I'm saying? That people sort of move towards that. Um, You know, you try it out, see what it sounds like when you say it. Yeah, I, I absolutely do know what you're saying. So maybe this letter is one of those iterations. Who knows? Yes, I think it is. And one of the things that it does is that then suddenly, you know, it really diminishes its power. I was so 
interested in what you said, Catherine, about how it became this like the fact of your life. You can't even have you can't have small talk because right. you're carrying this big secret. Well, now that you've told it, I bet you I bet you make like small talk like nobody's business. <laughs> or at least I could, or I wouldn't resent it. Exactly. Or there's all sorts of other things to think about. That's right. right. And and, and you, the rest and of in, life. And in your new book, I know you right. write about your father and you know, you write about other things. And that's the yeah. beauty of life. Yeah. Is this once you let go of that secret it's a story for you to tell. It's not a story that tells you. And I think that that is the power of releasing these secrets. So thank you so yeah. much for taking the time oh, to well, talk to us. Thank you for having me. All right. Thanks, Catherine. Bye, thank Catherine. You. Bye. So what an intense conversation and letter to ponder. And yet, you know... I keep returning to this idea that really is about simplicity, which is that we all have the right to tell the truth about our lives, no matter what happened to us and no matter what the consequences of that telling may be. I think I said one time on another episode that the Knopf attorney who vetted my book Wild, you know, they did this legal vetting. And she asked me, I'd written in that book, not about my grandfather, but about my father being physically abusive and so forth. And she said to me, I thought she was going to say, you can't write this stuff about your dad because he'll sue us. And instead, she said, would your brother and sister also say that your father behaved in these ways? And I said, yes. And she said, you're fine then. You can say whatever you want because (laughs) the truth is an absolute defense. And I've really, you know, if I got a phrase tattooed on my forearm, it, it might be that. It's and so I want to give you that phrase lost somewhere in California. The yeah. truth is an absolute defense. And what was really interesting is one day I got a phone call from my sister, and she said, Dad wants to know your address. And she's in touch with him a bit, but she knows that I don't have contact with him. And she was asking permission. And I said, why does he want my address? And she said, well, he wants to sue you. And I thought, here it comes. You know, I thought he was going to try to sue me over what I'd written in Wild. But in fact, what she told me he was so upset about was this column in Tiny Beautiful Things when I wrote about not him, but about his father doing this thing Mm -hmm. to me and my sister. Mm -hmm. And she said to me, he's very upset. And, you know, my sister said, he said to me, can you believe what your sister's saying about my dad? And my sister said to my father, to our father, which makes me so proud of her. She said, Dad, but it's true. And he immediately then became angry with my sister for Mm -hmm. saying that. And I think that that's really, of course, I'm not the only one who's learned this lesson, this bitter lesson, that sometimes when we speak the truth, there are going to be people who will deny that truth. It's not so much that they want to deny the truth. They want you not to tell it. Right. And what one of the rules of my life is if somebody will get mad at you for simply telling the truth, then they're not somebody I'm going to have, you know, in my life. You know, I sort of ally myself with the truth tellers or at least the truth seekers. Right. And I think that that has been a really beautiful guiding light. I don't need to call my father up and have him hear the story of what his father did to me. Mm-hmm. But I do need to own the right to my own life. Mm-hmm. It's such a good segue to what we'll be talking about next week, which is that right to tell the truth about your own life is separate and apart from what happens when you do that and the secret is revealed within a family. That's right. And sometimes I want to say, you know, it's not all doom. Sometimes discovering a secret leads to 
beautiful things. Right. Forgiveness, reconciliation. Yep. And we're going to really explore all of that terrain, the wide range of positive and negative consequences that can come about when we discover a secret. Hmm. So join us for that next week. Dear Sugar Radio is produced by WBUR. We are produced and edited by Lisa Tobin. We're recording today at Talkback Sound and Visual in Portland. Josh Millman is our engineer. Our new theme music is by the Portland musicians known as Wonderly. The vocals are by Liz Weiss. Please listen and subscribe to Dear Sugar Radio on iTunes. And if you would, write us at dearsugarradio at gmail.com.